Buenos días, señor y señoritas. Esta noche estamos Radio Clash. Y toda la gente, hold on tight. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I am your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Michael Donaldson. Michael has been on all sides of the music business 8-Ball. He's owned a label, a promo company, a sync and publishing agency. He's recorded, toured, and been signed to a major label. As a youngster, he even did the obligatory stint in a record store. Now Michael's an advisor to and commentator on the 21st century music business. He publishes one of my favorite newsletters, Ringo Dreams of Lawn Care. Links to that and other of Michael's endeavors are in the episode notes. Michael was an engaging and fun guest, and I hope you enjoy our talk. Man, you look and sound so professional. (laughs) (laughs) I have an audio engineering background. (laughs) <laughs> That's amazing. Where did you, uh, are you self-taught or did you, uh, did you do study formal? Well, self-taught. The story is that I, I'm trying to think of how I, how I discovered the dark art of audio production or hmm. became aware of it, I guess I should say, because as early as I can remember, you, you, when you think back to when you were in your early teens, like 11 or 12 years old, you're starting to really get in the music and you're kind of figuring out you know, do I want to be a guitarist? Do I want to be this or that? And for some reason, I wanted to be a producer. It was just, I guess, just the sound of the of records just really um, captivated me, just how people got these sounds. And I think a lot of it had to do with a lot of the records that I was uh, sort of being turned on to. Um, I remember um, a lot of the early Trevor Horn productions. I remember like yeah. that Art of Noise album. Uh, the very first album just completely boggled my mind when I first heard it. So yeah, when all when all my friends were all wanting to be guitar guitar heroes or singers, you know, I wanted to be the guy kind of recording them, and that's sort of how I got my start. In that I mowed a a, a lot of lawns, <laughs> uh, <laughs> saved up my money, and bought a high end Tascam four track cassette four track, uh, kind of the high end model. Um, and uh, from some church that was apparently bought it and didn't know what to do with it and then sold it very cheap and just recorded my friend's punk rock bands and learned from, from that. In, in fact, I still look back at the best drum sound I ever got, <laughs> which, was, which was a single microphone hanging over the drum kit in this metal barn that we recorded in because we were in central Louisiana. So there were a lot of little metal barns. And I, I, would, I still sometimes listen to that. That and just like how how the hell did I get that sound from those drums? Are you able to sample it at all? Have you been able to reuse that sound? No, no. I mean, I, I what's really funny is I would have to get the same exact four track again to be able oh. to. I, I have I have a lot of the original cassettes, but this it, it used like this. There are like multiple versions of DBX like yeah. DBX one, two, and three, and it used like a version that wasn't very popular. So if you don't put the tapes in like a, that have the same version of DBX, then uh, it, it sounds all hissy and weird. So yeah, I've been wanting to hunt one down. I mean, I know, I know exactly what the, uh, the model is. So someday I'll track yeah. it down and maybe go through those. Well, that, that's really interesting to me because, you know, um, I did a little bit of engineering as well. And um, my, my path to it was a little bit different, which was I, I, never, I never understood uh, the role of the producer as a kid. 
I, it never occurred to me that the producer was shaping the sound. Um, and, uh, so I would always, I was super intrigued by the, the engineers and I was intrigued because it was such a, um, it was such a scientific sounding name to be in the yeah. context of an album or music. And I, and again, I never really understood it. You see the old, like say the Beatles sessions, uh, photos where they're all wearing lab coats. I mean, it's, it's totally sexy and wonderful. It's so funny to read about all the, <laughs> yeah, the old EMI, uh, studio or the BBC people. Yeah, literally they were, they, they, the idea, <laughs> the lab coat thing kills me. But there was a, a studio near where I grew up um, in Connecticut called Trod Nossel. And um, they used to do uh, live uh, broadcasts. So band, like, there was a famous Fleetwood Mac bootleg from the 70s that, that was recorded from there. But basically, bands would show up at that studio and they'd broadcast them on the local you know, rock FM station. And so that studio was where uh, my high school band was going to record. And it turned out that if you took the audio engineering course there, you could get free and discounted studio time. So that was my, <laughs> my motivation. Um, and then originally I thought I might want to study, um, you know, I might want to go to school for audio engineering, but the engineer at the studio, when I was taking the class said to me, look, going to school for audio engineering, it's fascinating. You'll enjoy it, but it doesn't guarantee you work. He's like, it's, it's like going to Berkeley. When you're a musician, you come out and you've got a degree that you went to Berkeley but you're better off going somewhere and sweeping the floor and getting the coffee and working around engineers if you want to become an engineer because you'll learn the things you need to learn, um, including enough of the science of it without, you know, going into four years of debt, basically. I, I totally agree. And, and it's the thing is, I feel like I learned so much just from dealing with so little for so many years, just this four track, you know, and I was, I was making for a four track, pretty complicated productions. I mean, I, I figured out how to bounce down a stereo master and then bounce that back and then keep bouncing and planning out ahead of time. So you can get this with a four track, you end up getting a production with like like three or four stereo tracks on top of each other and like two or three mono tracks and have this like this full on production. And I mean, it took forever to figure out how to do that. But I, I feel like once I got in front of a computer and had a DAW to, to play with, it's like you kind of bring this mentality with you that um, in some ways is a hindrance because I, you, you are more creative when you have limitations and when suddenly you have no limitations, you can kind of get very flummoxed. Yeah. But at the same time, you have a realization of that to where you can sort of set your own limitations. I mean, as, as a DJ, I always talk about how where I learned the DJ in the early 90s was the back room of this club that had these two turntables that would not stay on pitch. They had a, um, instead of an actual DJ mixer, it was a four-track a cassette four track mixer, except it was a cheap four track as opposed to mine. And there was no monitor. And that's, I played twice a week in this room for a year. And that's where I learned the DJ. And it's like, because of that, you could put me in front of any insane DJ situation and I can, I can totally rock it. That's amazing. So, in fact, yeah. the first, the first real gig I ever had um, was at this little club in new Orleans. And, um, I had to actually turn the monitor off because it was screwing me up because I was so used to not DJing with a monitor. 
<laughs> not being able to hear yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, using my headphones. Yeah, right, right. Um, so take me back a little bit. When you were the kid um, listening to the Art of Noise and looking at the, uh, the liner notes and discovering Trevor Horn's name, uh, where were you? Where did you grow up? What environment were you in? I was in uh, Tioga, Louisiana, though wow. we used to say that we were actually in Pineville, Louisiana, because Pineville sounded more uh, upscale than Tioga, Louisiana, um, <laughs> which, is a, which is a running joke to anyone from the area. We'll totally appreciate that. It's, they're, they're basically little suburbish towns outside Alexandria, which is right in the center of Louisiana. A lot of times when I tell people I grew up in Louisiana, people are like, oh, that's cool. I love New Orleans. It's like, no, I was... I was five hours from New Orleans. <laughs> it's nowhere near New Orleans. It's really interesting because I, I obviously I hated it at the time. I hated being there. I was like one of these kids that sort of realized very young that I was a writer of music and outsider art. And, and I was lucky in that I had some friends that were a lot older than me that yeah. were able to do really cool stuff when I was very young. But at the same time, I'm very thankful for growing up in that environment because it had a big effect on my outlook of really appreciating discovering amazing music and discovering amazing books and amazing movies and amazing people because it was very hard to find friends, but the friends that I found, uh, the handful of friends I found in central Louisiana that appreciated the things I did, like the friends of my punk rock band and all that stuff are, you know, my closest friends ever and remain to this day very close friends. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 conflicting cuz central Louisiana was not fun. <laughs> but yeah. uh you know, it's like when I got to when I got to age where I wanted to go to concerts, um it was a minimum 2 or 3 hour drive to go see a concert. What um, would be the closest place a concert would show up that you want to see? Uh Houston. Oh, okay. All right. So Houston, Houston would be like a 2 or 3 hours. And I saw I mean and when I when I hit that age, I mean, I saw some amazing concerts in Houston. I saw Sonic Youth on the Daydream Nation tour. Uh, saw butthole surfers twice in the mid eighties when they walked the earth as gods, the feelies during that period who were my, my number one favorite band. And to kind of relate to that story is when I moved here to Orlando, which I moved here for college in 89, um, Alex Chilton was playing at a club in downtown Orlando. And I, I don't, the, I had seen Alex Chilton twice before and drove like three or four hours to see him. And it was mind boggling to me, just like blew my mind that I could drive 15 minutes and see Alex Chilton. <laughs> it was, it was yeah. like such a great feeling. Yeah. I, uh, my experience was slightly different in that I grew up in the suburbs of New Haven, in Connecticut. And so really you could drive anywhere from 20 minutes to two hours in literally any direction. And you'd get the punk scene out of Providence. You'd get, um, you know, the remnants of sort of the, um, the power pop garage scene in Boston, um, obviously New York City, vibrant punk scene in Southern Connecticut. Um, and then, you know, it seemed like you couldn't throw a rock without hitting an arena back in the day. So in the 80s, I pretty much saw any arena act that came through the New Haven Coliseum or the Hartford Civic Center or Springfield, Massachusetts. So um, I, I hear stories like yours a lot. And uh I oftentimes feel bad <laughs> having had such access to, to everything, you know? Yeah. I, it's weird though, because it's, it's like I was saying earlier at the time, it seemed terrible, but I think it's, it's just different and it, it yeah. enhances the outlook in a different way. I don't think one is in one outlook is 
worse than the other. But like one example, um, I, I write, I've written about this in my blog where I bought um, a powered antenna from, if you remember, Crutchfield, where you could order all this mm. audio stuff. And when I was like 16 or 17, I, I paid like 30 bucks for a powered antenna, an antenna that you could plug in and it would basically boost the signal of what it was hooked into. And I opened up a boombox so I could get the an- disconnect the antenna on the boombox and wire it to this, to this powered antenna and I would hang the powered antenna out my second story bedroom window. And then I could pick up, usually only after 10 or 11 p.m., I could pick up like the college radio stations in Houston, or there's a really good one in, a, in a Lafayette, Louisiana, actually, um, Baton Rouge, KLSU. I used to be able to pick up these stations. And he's like, you had to really work for it to like hear this music and listen to it. And because, because it would be the middle of the night would be the only time I could really pick it up, I would uh, buy those like cheap 120-minute cassettes and I would stick them in the boombox and just hit record and go to sleep. And the boombox would hit the end of the side of the tape and it would click and the click would wake me up and I'd sleepily turn the tape over and then hit record again and go back to sleep. And I would like, do that all through the night. So I never probably got more than 60 minutes of sleep at a time. And then the next day in, in high school, I would like have my headphones on and all day and just be listening to the tapes with all the static and going in and out. And yeah, it was amazing stuff. Well, to indulge in another minute or two of sort of nostalgia porn, um, I think what's interesting about um, everything you're saying is it speaks, first of all, to, you know, a, a, obviously the pre-internet era. And it part of it really begs the question of, you're in central Louisiana. What was your first access or what were the first sort of channels into to central Louisiana of this sort of left field music? You know, you mentioned some older friends, but like, where did they find out? How did the art of noise make it to central Louisiana in the early mid eighties? <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really, I, I think about this too and try to figure this out. I mean, it's, it's like a combination of things. Like I had an older friend who was four years older than I was. So when I was a freshman in high school, he was a freshman in college, and he went to uh, Tulane, and he got a DJ p- job at the at the radio station there. And every like th- two or three weeks, he would come home to visit his folks, and we would hang out, and he'd be like, "Oh, you got to check this band out, Husker Du, you know, or you got to check this out." And uh, he would bring the vinyl records, and I would have my boombox, and I would like tape them, and. I think that just kind of gets you on a, on sort of a path where you, it's kind of like a Navin Johnson and the jerk where it's like, if this is out there, what else is out there? <laughs> and you just, you just look all over the place for it. Like suddenly I realized that this one mall record store had this little section called imports that you could kind of come through and find all this weird stuff. And then suddenly I discovered that the guy who is in charge of that import section is this really cool guy who, you know, invites me over to his house and go through his record collection. And you just kind of go from there and there. And at the same time, of course, you can't discount some of the things that were going on with MTV. There was like the IRS's cutting edge TV show, which was just completely amazing for me. There was a really cool show called London Calling they used to, they used to have, which um, had a lot of like the weirder electronic uh, British acts at the time, like the mid 80s. Like I remember seeing Cabaret Voltaire and things like that on, on that 
for the first time. And then outside of MTV, of course, there's Night Flight, which Night I think Flight, you, man. which I think you you talk to anyone like me, like someone who is basically trapped in a small town with nothing else around. It's like we all just like talk about Night Flight and how influential Night Flight was. Night Flight is like it's hard for people to understand the role that Night Flight played of in music nerds and any kind of like remotely maladjusted person of our age demographic like knife light was profound man holy it was like a it was like a message from an alternate universe the content on there the films the short films the cartoons the music videos like that thing was it's it's incredible yeah the uh I th- if you remember they used to show um episodes of uh new wave theater yeah which was uh I mean, it was kind of the, the most exhilarating and also one of the most frightening things I think I'd ever seen. I mean, it was just, just kind of like, what is this? And is this really out there? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess all that took a piece of like, you know, there's, um, it was, it was like unintentional curation and it was, I think to your point, um, in contrast to maybe some of my early experience, but where they both, both definitely dovetailed was this notion of you had to work to find stuff. Like some stuff came into you. There was like a spark that would land in front of you. And then you could sort of unravel that and it would lead to all these other places. And there's several things you said, you know, whether it's the guy in the record store or it's the older friend. Um, I had, I had one of my oldest friends, uh, closest friends. Um, he was 10 years older than me and I met him when I was 15. And so this is the mid eighties. And so, you know, he's giving me the mid seventies rock experience and he was into some oddball music too. But so he was, he was part of my entry into, uh, uh, black Sabbath, uh, angel, like all that weird seventies, um, right. proto metal stuff, but also Zappa and, uh, just, you know, he, he had a voracious appetite for music was just one of those figures, right? It was like one of the people that you go over and, and pillage his record collection and, and, you know, and when you don't have any context, there's no limitation on genre or like who should be playing what kind of music. I, and I called it nostalgia porn earlier and I try not to indulge in it too often, but it's, it's a very magical feeling, right? To, to, to pick up a new record and then to discover a whole world inside. Yeah. And it's, it's another thing that was influential to me too. And, uh, and like you, I'm, I, I'm very wary of nostalgia and so there's a, a footnote to this story. Another thing that was super influential to me was this fanzine out of North Carolina called The Bob, um, which was uh, spearheaded by a, a music writer named Fred Mills, who I think is still around. Um, and that was my, my Bible. Like that would come in the mail and I would just read it from, and when I say zine, it wasn't like a little zine. It was like a newsprint, um, pretty Pretty substantial. I mean, it would take me a few days to get through it from cover to cover. So I would go through it, read the interviews, even if I had no idea who the person was. And then I'd get to the, the music reviews and I would go through the music reviews and anything that sounded really good, I would like circle it. And then I would get to the end and the very last page of the Bob was always a, an ad for Piers Platters in New York. Mm-hmm. And I would get my mom's credit card and call and basically go through what I had circled and kind of spend whatever money I, I worked at. I actually worked at a record store at the time too, which couldn't, it was a 
Camelot music, so it couldn't really get a lot of these indie records, but I had some a stream of pay that I could spend the records on or I could spend on to order the records from Pierce Platters. But I remember there was one record and I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but there was one record where I, they never had it and I couldn't get it. And I, I just became obsessed with this record. Like I'd read the review and I'm just like, this is, this sounds like the most amazing record ever. And it was always on my mind and just kind of thinking about it. And I think it was like four or five months later, um, I was in Baton Rouge for some reason and went to this cool record store that was right off the LSU campus and walked in and there was that record. And I'm just like, Oh my God, there's the record. And I bought it. And then I, it's two hours back home. And I'm just like the entire way, like, Oh my God, I can't wait to hear this record. And then you get home and I put it on and I'm just like, it may not have been the greatest record in the world, but at that time it was like, this is the greatest record in the world. It's like you go through all those feelings, which, I don't know if those feelings exist anymore, but my, but my footnote to that is, I mean, I would have traded that for streaming like in a heartbeat, you know, it's like, even though capturing that feeling is, is, is so special and now it seems very unique and maybe missing, but at the same time, it's like, God, I, to be able to read that review and then just just type it in and then listen to it right there. It's, the record probably wouldn't have been, the fact I don't remember what the record is probably says something too, that it seemed really special at the time, but it obviously didn't stick with me. But, yeah. you know, I don't know. It's, 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 it's something I talk to a lot of people about. And I feel like, I feel like my generation is, is an interesting one in that it's, it's like, I feel like I'm one of the last generations that know that feeling just as I'm like one of the last generations that took a razor to audio tape and (laughs) did an edit on audio tape, you know? So yeah, it's, it's very interesting to think about. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that, that, that is, that's a very strong point. I think one of my only counter to that, and I say this really from a personal space is that such a big part of my experience back then? I spent a lot of time alone. I was an only child for the first ten or so years of my life. So, like being alone in my room with the records was was sort of an important part of the experience. And the the tactile part of it that people talk about the, the opening the gatefold, the reading the names, even like looking at the address of like the, you know the fine print at the bottom of where things were distributed or where records came from. I can't really untangle that from the overall experience in my you know it well, just for me yeah you shouldn't and we should when we should be demand we should be demanding that honestly i mean i i think that's i don't think that's the fault of the time we're in or the technology i think that's that's partly the fault of the services we're relying on for this and it's partly our fault for not demanding it so i mean i i see things changing but you know, we do have a long way to go, but yeah, I agree. I mean, there's so many, so many connections that need to be, that are missing between connections in music and artists and producers and things that are totally lost on, on um, people discovering music for the first time now. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel, I feel like it's partly our responsibility to bring that out there, whether it's through how we talk about the music how we write about the music, blog about the music, how we introduce the music to our friends. Um, mm. But it shouldn't be on all our, it shouldn't only be on our shoulders. 
Yeah. What do you, what, in your mind, what, what accounts for the real lack of sort of innovation or differentiation in the streaming services? I, I, I think it's the age of them, honestly. I think it's, it's, I think it's too young. I feel like that's going to definitely be an evolution of them. Um, I really see streaming coming closer in its model to how radio was in the 80s um, to where you had your very commercial radio station. And if you were an indie band, if you were Black Flag, you, had, you weren't going to complain if you weren't being promoted or played on the commercial radio station. Said you focused on the college radio station. And I don't see why streaming can't, sort of be like that. I mean, we have this idea that we need to be able to hear everything in one place, but I don't really think we need to. I don't see any reason why there can't be like a metal streaming service or a goth streaming service or, you know, bluegrass streaming service. Basically, I mean, in, I guess in the classical world, there are already services that do cater for that. But I, I, I feel like there should be some sort of, I, I feel like a differentiation of that sort will probably happen eventually. And mm -hmm. I, I kind of welcome it. I mean, I think we're kind of seeing that a little bit with, um, um, with Bandcamp, how Bandcamp is able to sort of create a very tight knit com community. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty insular. It's pretty much within Bandcamp, but I, I do feel like it'll be more of a streaming model that'll, that'll sort of come out of that. Do you think some of that's a function of the fact that you know, there was this transitionary period where the labels, the major labels especially, were approaching streaming, if not with antagonism. Let's, let's just put the value judgment language aside, but with some, you know, with some caution as they were transitioning to a new business model. And they were able to transfer what they perceived as their risk onto the venture-backed streaming services. So in other words, barrier to entry to start a streaming service is going to be large guaranteed checks to rights holders. And so right. as a result, you need to be a, a be all and end all. And the labels were not necessarily interested, nor were the services interested in sort of genre or niche approaches. But now that streaming is sort of proving itself and their sort of salad days are here again. Um, with, are, there different, are there different ways in now? Are there opportunities? You could go to a major label that is sitting on a 50 or 60 year old, say jazz catalog and propose a niche service with a different level of entry, different unit economics, et cetera. Is that, is there any merit to that sort of thesis? Well, I'll get a little, I'll, I'll get a little utopian here, which I, I think uh, is, is a good thing to, to be and maybe propose two options. I would like to see a sort of a licensing service Mm. let's say that there's an entity like say Spotify or just a service that acts as an entity that has all the licenses negotiated with all the labels. And then this service is able to white label itself to other niche streaming services that can use its licenses. If that makes any sense. Seems a bit of what Napster has been trying to do. Um, I don't know if they've been doing it at the niche level, but they've, they've, They've tried to sort of re reposition themselves as this the white label provider for other brands. Yeah, I've heard that, but I, I don't. Yeah, I'd like to see more of that. But I, I feel like if there was someone who handled all the licensing um, situations, 
to where if you wanted to start your metal, heavy metal um, streaming service, you could go to that company um, who would be able to transfer the licenses to you and then you could start your streaming service that was sort of oriented towards that. Um, another, another, yeah, and another, another utopian idea, which, which doesn't really involve major labels, is just with a proliferation of self-released artists and smaller labels, like the sort of thing you see on Bandcamp. I mean, I, ideally, I would like to see a lot of artists do, like say what Neil Young is doing with Neil Young Archives, where you're basically creating a hub on your own website you're the one who owns it. It's all you where people go to listen to your music. And of course that works for someone like Neil Young, but if you're like an indie label and you're, and you're concerned with discovery or not an indie label, but if you're like an up and coming band and you're concerned with discovery and you're worried if you're keeping all your music on your site, then no one will discover you. I'm wondering if there's some way where there can be a network of self-hosted artists and self-released artists that basically have their own catalog on their site, but then there's a streaming service hub that pulls from all these network artists to create sort of a, um, a general streaming service collecting all the people that participate in this. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, that, that, that's an interesting example you use, you know, for years, I ran companies or organizations within larger companies that were basically um, in the artist direct to consumer space. And, um, you know, and early on, um, you know, we're talking late nineties, early two thousands, that, that really meant, um, experimenting with digital delivery, um, in sort of either one-off ways or what have you. And over the years we had every possible scenario you can imagine, you know, partners who came to us with private label download stores, private label ringtone stores, and then artists driven way, you know, building sort of the timeline where you could upload every piece of ephemera possible for an artist. And, um, and I think I, I, I find that idea seductively attractive, but I think even for superstar artists, it runs the risk of constantly then playing to the core. And um, right. I think that that's a real concern, especially when you start to talk about like, and this is a, this is actually an area I'd love to talk about with you a little bit. Um, the artists who, who cater to the core so much that once they're gone, once they're not active any longer, they pass away, they retire, they, whatever, they disappear. And I, and I think about I, I, what, what originally got me on this thought several years ago now was the Jefferson airplane, right? They're a funny example. Um, and it has nothing to do with the Jefferson airplane qualitative, but like, you know, first band signed to a million dollar major label advance, um, the it band for a period of time in the sixties, right? You know, the whole summer of love scene and in, at least in the popular mind, not from a music nerd point of view, they were right. the representatives of their generation. They were the Nirvana of their, <laughs> of 1966. And, um, and nobody knows who they are. anymore. The records weren't produced that well. I don't think that helps. They sonically, they sound dated um, and not in a charming yeah. way, but, um, but nobody knows who they are. And, you know, you could argue they're maybe they're a bad example because they beat their own legacy into the ground um, with the, you know, Jefferson Starship and Starship and all that. But to try to factor for some, we could use Zappa as an example. Zappa is probably an even better example, right? He should be, for me, for our generation, he was a coming of age artist. Like every 15 year old boy at some point, it feels like was handed the Frank Zappa primer. And it was like, you must know about Frank Zappa. 
I know kids that came into it through Dr. Demento. I knew guys who came through it through an older brother, like whatever it was, the, you know, classic rock radio. But I think by and large, Frank Zappa doesn't exist. Um, I know people that um, Miles Davis doesn't exist for. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you have now almost 20 years of the catalog owner of, say, Miles Davis, only putting out these two and $300 every note played in a session box sets, they're beautiful. They're amazing. I love knowing they exist, but it's a small audience for that. Like, who's going to go out and buy the complete bitches brew session? <laughs> um, right. You know, and so I, I think that there's a real problem with, like, who knows about Janice Chop? Um, and so I, I think it's a real, I think it's a very real problem. And obviously not, not all art deserves to last forever. Um, but there's a real, there's a real problem with the hole that gets dug. And um, I don't know, that's bothered me for a long time. So I, I, as somebody who's so passionate about the direct to consumer space and about the artist to fan relationship, I've always had this counter tug within me of like, um, how, how do we, how do we make the table bigger? Think of an example, artist websites, right? We used to, uh, the company I ran was, uh, it was founded by David Bowie. It was really built for his, you know, Bowie net was a big thing. in the late 90s, Okay. And it was a monument to David Bowie, right? It was his creative vision. It had all content about him, but you think about the, the community part of those websites. It's hard. If you're a new fan, you get ridiculed. You don't know the language. You don't know the history. Like what's the way in, what's the way into the Neil Young archives? Like who's the guide to teach you the essential Neil Young? Like how do you learn the story? And uh, maybe none of this is important in a world where everything's on the same level in the streaming context, but I worry about that for, for some reason I can't quite articulate. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of times it's the, not responsibility, I was going to say responsibility, but I think, I think a lot of times we learn, we, we see how the threads connect from newer artists. And I don't know if newer artists aren't, I guess it is a responsibility. I think as a newer artist, you do have a responsibility to sort of show the threads that lead to you. And I'll go back to, to the Bob, that, that fanzine that I read. And I remember um, reading a Peter Buck interview and, you know, this was very early on and this was like murmur days for REM, but I was crazy about murmur. I mean, I was just like totally into that record. And so I was very enthusiastic reading this interview and he's talking on and on about this band I was not familiar with called the Velvet Underground. And I'm like, I got to check this band out, Velvet Underground. And I mean, completely changed my life, changed the entire direction of my life. I became such an obsessed Velvet Underground fan in my teenage years that I would like, I collected photos. Like if I saw a photo in like a magazine or something, and I would cut it out and put it on a scrapbook I had of the Velvet Underground because they were just so cool. I just had to have like all the photos and I would get all excited if I saw a photo I hadn't seen before. And that was all from just Peter Buck talking about Velvet Underground in this, uh, in this uh, interview. And I think a lot of that still happens and we see sort of revivals of, artists kind of pop up because people start connecting the threads or the artists themselves make those threads um, obvious. Um, I'm thinking of a a fascinating um, Twitter thread I saw a few weeks ago or where um, someone was posting um, 
all the um, connections between Prince and Joni Mitchell. Oh, and, I re- and I remember reading that thinking, how many people are going to be checking out Joni Mitchell for the first time after seeing this thread? I mean, it's, I, I feel like that's kind of one way that it happens. And that'll always happen. I think artists will fall out of favor and eventually someone will come up and make crazy music and talk about Frank Zappa in an interview and people will check them out again. I, I don't know. In a way, I kind of feel like it comes and goes in waves like that. Okay. I'm willing, I'm willing to take some comfort in that. I, I think a couple of examples that, um, that came up just from, from talking to you and, and, and doing some research before talking to you, I think you mentioned Alex Chilton. I mean, there's the, there's the, the, the poster artist for somebody who um, was re. I mean, his story is, it's a tough one to, to think about, oh, especially if tough. all you knew is the last 10 or 15 years of his life. I mean, a big star, is, is sort of the prototypical, probably second only to the Velvet Underground in terms of being championed by other artists. His last few years were a lot better, though, thanks he to got a victory step, lap. But thanks to that 70s show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, and, and just the undeniability of that music. Like once people started to pull on the threads, you know, the, the sort of mid-late 80s indie rock and everybody turning back and pointing to him and to Big Star, you know, it, it took it, it took a generation, I guess, for the most part, but it, it did happen for him. And the other example, which I have to thank you for posting this on your blog, man, the um, the video you posted of uh, Alice Coltrane from the African American Museum, uh, I had never seen that footage, and uh, I actually didn't make it through to the end. I've only seen about half of it. I've got to finish watching it. She's an artist where you know I can remember in the early '90s um, being a record collector you'd come across an Alice Coltrane record. And that was like, those were Holy Grail records, her impulse albums, Mm -hmm. Holy Grail albums. And now they're everywhere. They've been reissued multiple times, they're mastered. Um, And I don't feel bad about that. Like I don't need, I don't need that ownership of like only I have the Alice Coltrane record and I knew about it when like that, that's not important to me. Um, What's most important to me is that she's now written about in mainstream indie rock magazines or you know, you get somebody like Flying Lotus or Thundercat, like she's relevant. Um, that to me is exciting because it could have just as easily broken the other way. Her, you, you know, you could have gone down her, her sort of devotional path and nobody would ever have known about her music and she would have been this interesting side note. Um, I don't know. It's fun. Those things are fun. Yeah, yeah. There was a, I listened to a podcast um, a few days ago and I've been meaning to re-listen to this section of the podcast. I kind of wish I had re-listened to it before we spoke because uh, it's really relevant to this discussion. And it's, uh, it was an interview with uh, Derek Sivers, who I'm sure you know who that is. And he, uh, I think the, the podcast is called Yo Podcast. And it's a really good, I'm actually going to probably post a, a link to it on my blog tomorrow. And the interviewer is asking him all these sort of rapid fire which do you like better questions, you know, coffee or tea, you know, kind of like that. And he says, Hendrix or Bowie. And Derek, and Derek says, I, I, we're going to have to talk about that one. I can't just give you one or the other. And the guy's like, okay. And I, that's heavy. And he, he gives it this really deep answer about how, to what you were just saying, how about some, how some artists are forgotten. And he was saying that how, Hendrix was almost like this innovative flash where his influence is so major and everything, but it was such a flash that people don't really realize how influential he was anymore. While 
Bowie just kind of danced with that and just kind of extended and was almost, almost like this different sort of like constant light rather than just a flash. And I'm totally messing up what he said, but I would totally recommend listening to this answer. Yeah. But, uh, that, that, that's a, because I, first of all, that's the most unfair question I've ever heard. I know asked. it's crazy. Um, so I would love to hear almost anybody answer that. And that, that's, that's, that's a great, that's, that's really phenomenal. Um, could you answer that question? Well, see, so it's funny because I'll, I'll tell like a side story is that um, my, I think it was my freshman year of college. Cause I, I did two years of college in Louisiana before I came here. And I took like this college, I took this course of experimental composition um, which I, I think I just took it because I was like, why, what the hell is this course doing in Northeast Louisiana University? And <laughs> it was, it was this really cool class with like six of us and a, a Moog synthesizer and a, and a reel to reel. And it was basically like, all right, play with this and make some songs. And the guy who taught the class was, um, he like, conducted the university orchestra. I don't really don't think Monroe, Louisiana, which is where the college was, had its own orchestra. Maybe it did, but he was a conductor of some sort, very much a classical background guy. And uh, I can't remember what brought it up or the context, but I remember him telling me that in his view, Jimi Hendrix would be just as important to the history of music years from now as Beethoven or Mozart. Like he like seriously believed that. And I think about that all the time. And it is kind of that flash of innovation and creating something from out of nowhere that is everywhere <laughs> after you create it. So I don't know how I'd answer that question because I, I kind of do feel like what, what Derek says is, is true. I, I think it's, it's super different. Um, personally, I probably listen to David Bowie a lot more than I listen to Jimi Hendrix, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of an unfair question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting line of inquiry about the, the, the Beethoven versus Hendrix thing. And, and there's a couple of things that strike me about that. One is sort of the need to legitimize what Hendrix did in the context of Western classical music. Like they're, they're different things. They're, they're not related. One doesn't qualitatively make the other better or worse. But also, I think the, 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 the issue I have with that, other issue I have with that notion is that Beethoven left a larger body of work. He, you know, he left repertoire. So Hendrix could have had as much of an impact sonically, technically, you know, in the studio for more guitarists, you know, more actual performing musicians, but it's a more obscured influence, right? It, yeah. it, it actually, it's so deeply permeating um, that it's not the same as every local civic orchestra around the country having a Beethoven night in their concert series every year. Um, right. But it's, it, but it, uh, I, 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 and I don't say that to, to negate his comment. It's just, I guess I, I feel so strongly that not only are they different things, but I, I sort of have this like populist knee jerk reaction to, to the idea that like classical is legitimate and rock music isn't, you know, and I, and yeah, I yeah. smell that a little in there. <laughs> yeah, and to and to and to his defense a little bit. I mean, this was an experimental composition class, so thinking back, I'm sure he was. The context is just basically in terms of sound and tone sure. and the influence of in that 
Um, obviously, as far as composition goes, you could say Hendrix wouldn't be as uh, as influential. But as far as you know, we talk, we, all the talk about craftwork recently with Florian Schneider dying is the same thing, where it's 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 about how they change the tone of music and change the way and the style of music in a way that just is going to probably be with us for decades and decades and decades. Yeah. In some of the endless um, commentary after he passed, there were a couple of things that really resonated with me. One was when all is said and done, they may prove to have been much more influential even than the Velvet Underground. Um, just the fact that, you know, if it had only been what they had done for like sort of UK and European new wave and early eighties dance music, that would have been profound enough, but forget the influence on techno and hip hop and like just profound influence. Well, it's, it's all, it's, it's like threads. As we mentioned, you could just, all these threads were certain things would not exist without the things before. And, you know, I'd, an even more infuriating discussion that probably went on more than Hendrix versus Bowie is of course, when Florian Schneider died was the who's more influential Kraftwerk versus the Beatles, you know, that yeah. kept coming up, which is like, what, what does that even mean? But it's like, you can see, but there's obvious thread of the Beatles and Kraftwerk and how Kraftwerk used the studio probably would not have happened if the Beatles hadn't used the studio they had. And you bring little Richard in the mix to bring three that died at the same time. It's like there wouldn't obviously would probably not have been the Beatles the way they were without little Richard. So there probably wouldn't have been little craft work without little Richard. You know, it's like these threads that sort of just compound onto each other and create uh, the music, the musical world we live in. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating when you sort of think about the puzzle and how missing pieces can kind of completely change the landscape of that puzzle. Yeah. I, I, I can, I can share a, a, a little craftwork story that I think um, illuminates your point. A few years ago, um, I was wrapping up my tenure at Warner music group. I went to see craftwork um, in Detroit with one of the uh, guys at Atlantic Records because we were pitching them on doing a documentary. And I mean, you know, as a, as a music fan, the idea of going to see Kraftwerk in Detroit to me was like, I was fully aware of what I was doing. <laughs> it was like, holy Absolutely. shit, Kraftwerk in Detroit. It was at the Masonic Temple. Um, it was, you know, one of their 3D shows. I mean, it was just, it was, it was peak music experience for me. But we went and spoke with Ralph after the show. And oh, wow. he and he said to us, I mean, it was like a child of glee. And he said, Atlantic Records, Ahmet Erdogan, Aretha Franklin. We love that music. Like he was so excited about American black music. Um, the project wound up not going anywhere, but it was a phenomenal artist interaction. Just like I felt like an ambassador from another planet. And like, here's somebody I hold up as a you know, that's an icon. And he was so excited to like have a brush up with, with that history. It was really a, a kind of a special little moment. But the other, the other contrast I thought was interesting, New York Times did a, um, I, I like their podcast, the podcast that they do, the music one. I listen to maybe every third mm -hmm. or fourth one, but the ones I do listen to, I really like. And um, they did a great piece on um, contrasting Tony Allen and Florian. And they both yeah, died. I heard. I, I listened to that. Yeah, it was really good. That was really good. I, I really loved the. I mean, it was you know artfully done, but they they tied the uh, they tied the two 
influences and the, you know and using rhythm and innovation around rhythm um, in a really interesting way. I thought that was that was a very satisfying analysis. Yeah, and it's and it's like on, on my newsletter and my I, I talked a lot about the Little Richard, Kraftwerk, Tony Allen, you know, kind of all departing around the same period, and just how weird it was because it is three like very influential people. I don't think is Tony Allen's influence is a little, little subtler for people who aren't familiar with Thela or, or what Tony Allen does, which, you know, unfortunately are a lot of people, but you still hear those rhythms in, in pop music. Now, you know, those rhythms have, it's almost like this, you know, I, I hate, I, <laughs> it's like the wrong time to call it. It's like a virus, but it is kind of like this virus that sort of, sort of on the underground kind of permeated everything. And suddenly here are these like amazing to- Afrobeat kind of Tony Allen rhythms happening in, uh, in pop music. And it's, it's yeah. a really cool thing to see. And, you know, I mean, of course the same thing happened with Kraftwerk as well. You suddenly hear sort of Kraftwerk's influence sort of breaking in. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned, um, I think in the newsletter I talked about that, I also mentioned about these two BBC documentaries that I really enjoyed. There was one, and you could find them on you know, YouTube where they're probably not supposed to be, but you should still go there and watch them anyway. One's like, it's, I think it's called Krautrock, The Rebirth of Germany. And a second one is called um, Synth Britannia. That's the name of it, Synth Britannia. With Krautrock obviously being like a history of Krautrock and then Synth, Synth Britannia being the history of early 80s synthesizer music in, in England. And I remember watching both of these just by coincidence. I watched both of the, these back-to-back when I saw them. And they totally go together as like the Krautrock documentary just kind of shows the environment, musical environment in Germany starting in the late 60s that led to Kraftwerk and the phenomenon that was Kraftwerk with that first documentary ending with the ascent of Kraftwerk and Kraftwerk becoming international superstars. And then you watch Synth Britannia, which the very first part of Synth Britannia is the members of OMD, who were a guitar band at the time, going to a Kraftwerk show in Liverpool, which I think was like 76 or 77, and the next day selling all their guitars and buying synthesizers. <laughs> and then the rest of Smith Britannia is just like the tentacles of Kraftwerk, like going outward all over the whole music scene of Britain, which of course those tentacles like expanded all around the world. And it's fascinating watching those two together and seeing how that all ties. I want to be sensitive to the fact that we're, um, we're starting to um, near the end of our time together. And I, I wanted to let you know that while we didn't talk a lot about um, your specific projects, we will um, in the episode notes and we'll link to the newsletter and, and we'll, oh, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll provide the, the proper context for what you're up to. But I, I wanted to ask you one or two more music questions. And uh, sure. where do you come down on the clash and where do they fit for you? <laughs> I, I have kind of a weird relationship with the clash because um, uh, my first exposure to the clash was Sandinista. Mm-hmm. which yeah. is a very difficult record when you're young to be, to, to get exposure. And then the whole reason was, is because um, in being 12 or 13 years old or, or younger, you know, I was buying cassettes. And then when I got a, you know, decided I wanted to graduate to like the real music fan, I'm going to buy vinyl. And I remember going into the record store and 
being like, I'm going to buy vinyl. I've heard about the clash and I want to buy a clash record. And uh, there was Stan and Issa. And I'm like, well, it's three or three records for the same price as the single album. So that's the one I'm going to buy. Cause I get more music. And uh, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I mean, there were like a few songs I liked, but it was just, it was just a little too much. I totally wish I had started with a different record. So the clash weren't like a, a huge influence on me. Um, very young, but I'll, that said, um, the experiments with that the clash were doing um bringing dub production in kind of their later years are just stunning to me like the the, the fusions that they were doing um yeah. there's this 12 inch mix it's kind of hard to find but there's this 12 inch mix of a radio clash and i wish i could think the name of it i'll, I'll send it's got to be on youtube after we talk i'll, I'll email you a, a link to it so people can hear it on youtube but it's only on a t the original 12 inch of radio clash and it's got a different title and it's this crazy dubbed out version of that song. And when I DJed up to, you know, I was DJing like weekly until like 2009, 2010. And this record was like one of my like staple records. And I guess the record came out in 82, maybe 83. And I would play this record and every time I'd play it, someone would always come to me and go, who did that brand new remix of the clash? Mm, yeah. I, it was just, it's just like an incredible, incredible record. Yeah. Well, they, I, the, I, I ask you that question as a precursor to, I guess my final two questions. One is, um, I'll ask them both. One is, would they be playing now? And two, are the gorillas, the clash of the late 20th and 21st century? <laughs> I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I, I need to listen to more of the gorillas, honestly. I mean, what I, I don't think I've actually sat down and listened to a full album, which I'm kind of ashamed to say just songs here and there. So uh, I'll rectify yeah. that. So I don't know about that, but as far as whether they, they'd be playing now, um, I, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like how I'm, I'm thinking in the question by asking the question, you have some thoughts that they might not. And I'm wondering what makes you think that? Yeah. I think Strummer was, was emerging as the Robert plant of the clash where he was able to, he just was going to turn down every offer and watch the offers get bigger and bigger. And that in and of itself would be part of his performance art. I think as he was emerging and coming back out and starting to play again, I think he was going to have a very interesting career resurgence um, I don't think he was ever going to, I don't think he was going to aspire to pop stardom, but I think he was going to make some very interesting, I think he was going to genre hop. I think he was going to kind of pick up where the clash was before they fell apart. And I, I just had the sense he was going to be exploring lots of different musical avenues. But then I counter that with, you know, it's hard not to imagine. I mean, I could imagine a world where the clash headlined Coachella, you know, where they were the reunion act. Or at the very right. least, they, they were getting the big offer every year. I mean, it just stands to reason. Like the Clash and the Talking Heads, in my mind, are the two that yeah. must must have. They would have gotten offers year in, year out, year in, year out. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure Talking Heads are getting those offers all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, but it, it's like that whole snapshot of that period in music too, um, in England, with that that created the Clash and. I just saw on Amazon Prime, there's a really good uh, documentary on the slits. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a really cool snapshot into that time that 
created the slits and created the clash and created a lot of those bands that were punky and political and uh, very British. So uh, there's a documentary that's out that I've been meaning to watch and maybe events of the last week or so make it more urgent that I'll do that maybe with my, my teenage son this weekend, but a documentary about the last poets um, that focuses on Umar bin Hassan. Um, I haven't seen it. I'd like to see it. And I'm wondering if, if you've come across it, if you've seen it or seen the trailer. I haven't seen it, but uh, I'm making note of that because I definitely yeah. would like, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a music doc, documentary junkie. I mean, I'll watch music documentaries about bands that I, I don't like just because I love hearing stories of any band really. Exactly. Um, and a lot of, sometimes those actually make me like the bands. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, is there one you'd recommend? Um, let me see. I'm trying got so many, you know, what jumped in the mind just because I ran across the Rolling Stone article again, um, is that, uh, that Netflix remastered series that the episode on the lion sleeps tonight, I think is, oh, is wow. that, that whole story is really amazing and, and kind of sad, uh, basically about the origin of the song, the lion sleeps tonight. Um, there's an article in Rolling Stone that's online. Um, the article I think is from 2010. So it's an older article and it's a very long article and it goes greater in the detail about it. Um, but yeah, the whole story is, is kind of amazing. And especially it deals into a lot of, um, a, a lot of, uh, issues with music publishing and music rights, which, you know, I'm kind of a junkie for, for stories about that on the yeah. legal side. So, uh, it kind of pushes all the buttons, but it's also, um, it's also kind of pertinent to this week too, about a lot of, uh, you know, black artists kind of not getting their due and not getting what they're, what they're owed. Yeah. But yeah, so I would, I would definitely re recommend that. Well, thank you for that. And, um, I, you know, I feel like there's, there's tons more avenues we could explore. Um, but I, I, I'm really appreciative, um, for you making time. I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, and uh, maybe we'll get to do a follow-up one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's a lot we didn't touch on that we could definitely yeah. go into, but this has been great. It's been a really yeah. interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Michael Donaldson. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Remember that Spotlight On is available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most anywhere else podcasts can be snatched from. As always, Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Thank you to Ant Taylor and the entire Light crew. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me at LP at light.com. Thank you, be safe, and stay in touch. <laughs>